we go. Bless your heart. <clears throat> Bless your heart. That, that, well, never mind. I'm not going to get into phrases that bother me. That's not one of them. But that's, that's definitely has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Uh, but it's a new month. It's a new year. It's a new everything. First Sunday of 2020. Um, I read this. Someone sent me this deal. It was an article. It's kind of hard to explain, but I'll try a little bit. Uh, but it, it did nothing else but make you feel old. Uh, but what it did was it took... Uh, we're this far from certain events as compared to other people. So right now, uh, you are closer, I mean, you are farther away from World War II in age, in, in distance, than those who were alive at World War II were from the Civil War. Those kind of things. It just makes you feel old. Anyway, <laughs> that, that people born at a certain time are closer to... Uh, whatever it is than this. It's an interesting article. Some guy, I don't know how he took the time to figure all that out, but um, it's a new, it's 2020. I said the other day we were all supposed to have flying cars by now and all that kind of stuff, and we're not there yet, but uh, maybe we'll get there this year. Maybe this is the year we all get flying cars. Who knows? Uh, but until then, just keep coming to church and keeping on. How about that? Uh, this, this, I said all of that to say we're starting a new subject this month because it's the start of a month. That was a long way to get there. Uh, but we're going to be starting a new topic this month, and uh, we're going to pray before we get started, and we also have a video to intro the lesson. But let's pray that the Lord would have his way in this class and all of our classes going on this morning. Lord Jesus, we come before you thankful that we can be in your presence, Lord, thankful that you brought us here together. And Lord, we've gathered here as your body to worship you, to magnify you, to lift you up. And Lord, we know that as we hear your word, that it has a work to do, that it will accomplish something in our hearts and lives, that you will anoint every ear to hear your word in every class this morning, God. And we believe and trust you for your work that you have to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to go ahead and play that video. Hope for the last days is what we're talking about, hope. Uh, we're talking about in like manner this week. But we can have hope because Jesus is returning for his people. Amen. I mean, that's quite a reason to have hope. And I think in these days, it, there is definitely a need for hope. I don't know uh, if any of you guys get on Twitter. Let's have a show of hands if you've ever been on Twitter before and looked on Twitter. There we go. All right. Okay. All right. Almost to two hands. Okay, we're getting there. <laughs> Uh, I don't know, uh, Twitter has a way you can make comments on there about whatever you want to make comments about. That's just a great thing to have that you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. But uh, as, as uh, topics gain uh, popularity, they have a trending section. And so it's the top things, top topics that are trending uh, in the United States or the world. And usually if you look at that, uh, if you see something that is trending with about 100,000 comments on it, that's quite a bit. A lot of times there'll be things on there with just a few thousand comments. If you start getting into 100,000, 200,000, that's a lot of comments. This past week, of course, there was all kind of things happening, uh, bombings in Iran and different things. I had never seen it this high before. It was over 3 million comments talking about World War III and events happening in Iran. So there's a lot of people, you know, these are times that, that uh, a lot of us have not experienced before like this, and there's a lot of people commenting on things, and I think it's important when we go through these moments, when society and when culture is reacting one way, our reaction should always be with hope. Amen. It should be with hope. It doesn't mean that we ignore or, or bury our head in the sand about things that are going on, but we realize that there is something more eternal. And we're going to be reading a couple passages of Scripture this morning, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And it says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In like manner is what we're talking about today, that Jesus went up to heaven, but he is coming back in like manner. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
beginning in verse 13. It says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. That's a good thing for Paul not to want us to be. Don't be a bunch of ignorant people. He says, concerning those who have fallen asleep, he doesn't just leave it there, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now there's, well, I'm not going to keep getting off track. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's a comfort to us. It's a hope and a comfort as we think about these things. Now, a lot of times in the... In the discipleship series, uh, as, as we've gone through, a lot of times they'll open with a story. They'll open with something, you know, something to pull you in, some sort of story, whether it's from Scripture or just uh, uh, from the world in general. But when we talk about the rapture, it's pretty hard to find a story that illustrates the rapture and the coming of the Lord <laughs> because nothing has happened like it. There's nothing that can come close to describing the return of the Lord. And it's difficult to find anything. We do find, however, a few events in Scripture that have some sort of similarity as the events that are, are promised about by Jesus in Acts chapter 1. The first one is about a man who was 365 years old. You think you're getting old? <laughs> this guy was 365 years old and his name was Enoch. And Scripture says he was not, for God took him. Now, the interesting thing is that Enoch was Methuselah's father, but, uh, and Methuselah ended up being the oldest man recorded in Scripture, lived to be 969 years old. Man, that's really old. You thought 365 was old. 969, that is really old. Almost 1,000 years of living. He lived 604 years longer than his father, and we begin to think, you know, there's all kind of things we can begin to think about with Enoch as he walked with God. But the Bible tells us that Enoch was not. And it was because of Enoch's faith that he was taken, that he should not see death, Scripture says, was not found, because God translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God, is what Hebrews tells us. There's also the story of Elijah. This was Elijah. He was walking and talking with Elisha one day, and, and all of a sudden there appeared a chariot of fire, horses of fire, parted them both asunder. So that's really parting them if you're parted asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. That's a day to remember right there, that you're walking along with this guy, and all of a sudden a chariot of fire and horses of fire come, part you asunder, and then he's gone. And Elisha never saw Elijah again. It tells, us, uh, it tells us in the case of Enoch, it says that he was not found. Now, have you ever, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but you know, I don't know what Enoch said he was going out to do. I don't know if he said, I'm going out for a walk, it's my prayer time. I don't know if he said, oh, I just had dinner, I'm going to you know, walk that off. I don't know what he said, but whenever he left, that was it. They didn't see him again. Has anyone seen Enoch? I mean, your first thought when someone's missing is not that God took them. <laughs> That's typically not our thought. And so I don't really know what people thought, but the idea, it says that he was not found, gives us some idea that someone looked for him and they couldn't find him. I don't know if his son Methuselah for the next 604 years after his dad was gone put up posters, have you seen this man? Yes, I've seen that man with a white beard. That's everyone. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't, we don't really know what, it, it, you know, Methuselah could have spent three days. He could have spent a hundred years looking for his dad. Who knows? We find with Elijah as well that there were the sons of the prophets, a group of, of people who asked Elisha to let them go look for Elijah. They said, we want to go find him. And Elisha said, no, don't waste your time. And finally he relents because they keep wanting to do it. So they searched for three days and they, they weren't as concerned about it, Elijah as, as maybe the others were. But they searched for three days, no results. 
And, and then they come back and Elisha said, didn't I say, don't go out, there's no point in looking for him. God took him. And if God took him, you're not going to find him. So we have these instances of, of people that had not a, uh, a return, but we see them leaving this world. For Enoch, it seems to have been a surprise, maybe. Elijah, on the other hand, there seems to be an idea that he expected to be taken away in some way. There were no fiery chariots or, or horses for Enoch, but they, they both had these otherworldly experiences. And because that's there... And we read about it. These things have happened. And there's another such event, even more grand on the horizon, and that is Jesus is coming again. These are the only things that we can really find that are comparisons in some level. But we do find that Jesus promised to return. He promised to return. After Jesus rose from the dead, he led his disciples out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them, and carried up into heaven. That's in Luke chapter 24. What a scene that must have been because uh, obviously we know that the disciples were not real good at catching what Jesus said. Throughout his ministry, we have many times where Jesus performed a miracle or he told a parable, and then afterwards his disciples come to him privately and were like, So you're going to really tell us what that means? Uh, Jesus would say it thinking that everyone's got it and then here come the disciples uh, we, we don't really get it either can you tell us they didn't understand about the crucifixion they didn't understand all that was taking place until it really started happening and so I'm sure that none of them assumed you know well Jesus is going to die on a cross and then we're going to bury him and then three days later he's going to rise again and then at one point he's going to gather us all together we're all going to be standing there he's going to be talking and all of a sudden he's just going to start rising up into the sky Tony, that's what's going to happen. No. So what a scene it must have been. We find that Luke re reiterates this when he writes to Theophilus again in the book of Acts. He says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. So for 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus gave commandments to his apostles. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He commanded them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. He explained that they would receive power after the Holy Spirit had come upon them and would be witnesses unto him beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea, and then Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And then Luke, he recounts the account of Jesus' ascension. He relays it again. And we already read it in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And the angel appears, they're standing, gazing up into heaven, as you probably would too. Like, what's going on? I mean, that, just imagine, that's a little freaky. If I just start rising up as I'm talking, y'all probably would start gazing. Even if you're not right now gazing at me, <laughs> the commotion would cause you to gaze at me. Just seeing, that, seeing what point I might get a little nervous. So he goes up and then an angel appears and said, why, why are you gazing into heaven? Well, because this guy just went up into heaven. That's why we're looking. And he said, just... The same Jesus that was taken up from you shall come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Enoch was not. Elijah was taken away. Jesus was taken up. These things have happened. And because they happen, there is no reason to think, first of all, that they can't happen again. And then also to believe the words that were spoken, that if this happened, then we can also believe that Jesus is coming again as well. He is coming in like manner as the disciples saw him go. In like manner. That means that when he returns, he is going to come visibly and in person. He's going to come visibly and in person. It wasn't just their imagination. It wasn't just a dream they had. It actually took place. And in the same way, when Jesus returns, he's actually going to return visibly and in person. Paul writes a letter to a young pastor, Titus. And he's writing to him, and he's talking to him about the church in Crete that Titus pastors and about things that he needs to do. And Paul writes to the believers in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 that Paul wrote the believers should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first thing we understand is that if, if God said it and these things have happened and this was promised, then we can believe that it will happen the way that Jesus said it would happen. 
And this is the second thing we need to pay attention to this point that Paul tells Titus, that because Jesus promised to return for his church, we should look for his appearing. Because he promised to return for the church, and if you're a part of the church, then the church should look for his appearing. And this is not an option. This is something interesting that we find. Sorry, I keep getting choked up this morning. Take deep breaths. We need to pay attention because it's something that we'll see that is very often related to the coming of the Lord and His returning is this idea that we are supposed to watch and to be looking for that. Jesus, He has what is often called the Olivet Discourse. This is Him speaking on the Mount of Olives. And He speaks at length about future events and He speaks about His second coming. And sometimes it's difficult to sort out exactly the precise order, interpret everything that Jesus said to lay out exactly as it went. But we do find a few things that are very clear in his declarations and things that will happen and things that we are supposed to do as he is speaking to his disciples. The first verse we read is in Matthew chapter 24 where we find this passage in verse 30. And it says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We do find, though, and this is something that is, if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, that this is something when they describe judgment, we also find that they're not just describing judgment in the Old Testament for the Israelites, for the Jews, but it also applies to the return of the Lord as well, that there's a second meaning to that, and very often, When you read them speaking about that, they talk about it as both a great and a terrible day. We find that exemplified when Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 24. He says, all the tribes of the earth shall mourn, but then we also see him appearing with power and great glory. That the coming of the Lord is both a great and terrible day. It's great and terrible not because of God, but because of you. How you view the return of Jesus Christ, whether it's great or terrible, depends completely upon you and how you have lived your life and what, you, what decisions you have made. So we find that it is both a great and terrible day. In verse 40, uh, 36 and 44 it says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Now, Scripture gives us, uh, through Revelation and Daniel, and there's various passages, uh, also including Matthew 24, uh, 24, we find that there are things that we can begin to look at that Jesus says when you see these things happen or when this takes place or this happens. And so there are signs or markers when we start talking about the return of the Lord. But I think it's interesting in this passage because we know that we don't know the exact day, the exact hour. If we did, we'd have a countdown clock, right? And then we know how much longer we have to sin and do whatever we want. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, maybe not you, but some people would. Not anyone here. Sorry. Not anyone here. We wouldn't sin. We wouldn't do things like that. But we'd have a countdown clock, and we would, we would know, okay, the Lord's coming back at this time. He's coming back at this hour, so this is how much time we got left. And, and, and we have those markers, even though we don't know the exact time, the exact day, the exact hour, we have markers. But then in, in this passage that we just read, it says, For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Now that's interesting, because we're going to look at it here in just a little bit, because we can get to the point where we start thinking that we know. And Jesus warns us, I may not come when you expect me to come. In fact, I may come and a time when you're not thinking that I'll come. Because I don't know about you, but in my own thinking, when I start looking at things, I start thinking when things get really bad, when things get really bad, that's when the Lord's going to come. But if you look through history, there have been some really bad points. Now, I was not alive during World War II or World War I. I know that's not, no surprise there. But if I was living and serving the Lord in one of those times, and that's a little more recent in our mind than going throughout all of history, if I was living in those times, I would think, man, the end of days is coming. I mean, how is Hitler not the Antichrist? He's taking over the world. 
He's taking over everything. To me, I would start thinking, wow, this is it. I don't think it was. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That was not it. Because in our own minds, we start thinking, well, surely this is it. But Jesus says you need to be careful and watch. Continually watch, because it's not just the moments when you think, well, this is going to be it. He says, I may come in an hour that you're not even thinking about it. And in fact, we st- well, I'm trying not to get into other lessons, but in fact, we find that Jesus says, as in the days of Noah... The days of Noah, if you weren't living for the Lord, were good days. If you didn't care about truth, they were good days. People were eating, drinking, giving in marriage. They were living life. The economy was good. Things were happening. We don't read about wars. Everything was peaceful and smooth. Take away truth. They were just doing whatever they wanted. And Jesus says, as it was in those days, when everyone's comfortable, when everyone's thinking, wow, things are all right right now, you need to be careful in those moments because he says, I may come in an hour that you're not even thinking about. We find similar account as Mark recounts the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 13, verses 33 through 37. He says, take ye heed, watch and pray. For you know not when the time is, for the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh, and even, and even or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning lest when coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. As I begin looking at this verse, man, there's a lot of stuff in, this, in these verses right here in this parable that Mark tells us about. He says, take ye heed, watch, and pray. He says, take heed, which means to be aware, to perceive. And I think this is where we start looking at what Jesus says, these things will happen, that... Jesus tells us that we are to take heed, to look, to be aware, to perceive that what is taking place matches with what Scripture is saying. That there are certain things and markers that Scripture gives us, and we start looking for those things, and we are to be aware of what is taking place, both not just spiritually, but also in the world as a whole. That Jesus has told us that we can look around and perceive that things are not going the way they should be going. It doesn't take a whole lot anymore to perceive that. He says, but take heed. You need to be aware of what's going on. It's not enough for us just to bury our head in the sand. It's not enough for us just to keep our head down. But he says to take heed to what is taking place in the world. He tells us to watch. And I thought, man, take heed and watch, that's pretty much the same thing. But as I begin to look at the word watch, it means stay awake. Stay awake. I find it very interesting I think that there is definitely a correlation between the return of Jesus Christ and awakeness. Because it's amazing how many times that Jesus talks about his return or tells a parable about his return and included with it is something about sleep or awakeness. Look at the parable of the ten virgins and what happens as they're all waiting. What do they all do? They all fall asleep. Of course, we find a parallel between watching and praying as Jesus takes his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane and tells them to watch and pray. And he says, can you not even stay awake for just a few hours? That Jesus is telling us that we are to look around and see, but also make sure that we are staying awake. Now, I don't know about you. There's some people that can fall asleep anywhere. (laughs) Anywhere. I'm pretty good about falling asleep just about anywhere. I don't usually stay awake at night, you know, tossing and turning. I just fall asleep. Um, I remember one time I was on a a bus trip, and uh, I I guess I just got comfortable. And I fell asleep, and I slept for quite a while. And when I woke up, I did not know the lady sitting next to me, but I had my head on her shoulder the whole time I was sleeping. (laughs) Some people can fall asleep in any situation, in any circumstance. But there has to be, whether your level of comfort is different than someone else's, you have to have some level of comfort. Whether you're comfortable like this, 
or whether you got to sprawl out, at some point you feel comfortable enough to fall asleep. Most of us don't fall asleep when we're completely uncomfortable. How you tried to fall asleep and you're uncomfortable? Just in your own bed, you get uncomfortable and you're flipping around and tossing around and finally your spouse says, you know, just go to the couch or quit. Not that that ever happens. You toss around, you, you know, you, you're in that, you're falling asleep, you know, you're, you're sitting there and you do that. You're, we won't call it the church nod or anything like that. <laughs> Amen, that one, you know. That's with the pews, you want to get on the end if you're tired because you have something to lean on. You do the amen like that. I was in Bible school, so I've seen all the ways that you can fall asleep in church and say Amen. <laughs> But there's some idea of comfort. And when Jesus says, watch, stay awake, he means don't get comfortable. Don't get comfortable. This world is not my home. Now, well, (laughs) how many of you ever stayed in a hotel before? There's an easy one. Stayed in a hotel before. There's a little bit difference about how that hotel room is, even if it's really nice, than how your own house is. How many of you, uh, now, I, if I'm going somewhere for maybe three, f- four days, a little bit more, I, I've kind of got into the habit of unpacking completely and actually utilizing the drawers that are there. How many ever use the drawers that are in the hotel? Some people use them, some people don't. Using those things because it makes it feel a little more at home, makes it feel a little more comfortable. You're not, you know, going through the suitcase the whole time. But there's this idea that it's, it's not home that we didn't bring everything with us. Maybe you're that kind of person. You did bring everything with you. (laughs) But you didn't bring everything with you, and as much as you try to make it like home, you're still glad when you get home because it's not home. Home is home. And there's a level of comfort. There's a level of familiarity. There's a level that that we uh, appreciate our home. And Scripture tells us that this world is not our home. And so sometimes we need to think of this world almost like a hotel room, that it's all right, okay, I can unpack some things, but realizing that this is not my home, that I've got to watch, I've got to take heed, I've got to make sure that I'm not reaching a level of comfort that gets dangerous, where I get comfortable enough to fall asleep. We find in this passage right here that the word watch is mentioned four times. Take heed is mentioned, praying is mentioned, but take watch is mentioned four times. In this passage, Jesus says it's more important to stay awake than even pray. He doesn't put the emphasis on prayer. It doesn't mean you don't have to pray, but he says, I want to make sure because he knows the danger of us that we get comfortable. That's what we like to do. We like to find a place and get comfortable. And he's telling us that we can't do that. And then he says to pray, pray. It's important for us that we can't, just, we can't just get freaked out about what's happening in the world and, and get all caught up in prophecy and do all these things and, and stay. Well, we've got to pray as well because that's what really changes things is prayer. It's not me knowing the specifics of all this and there's nothing wrong with knowing that, but I've got to make sure that I stay praying, making sure of what God is doing. It says, for the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and he gave authority to his servants. There's so much in this parable that you and I have authority, that he left and he gave us authority. We have authority whether we believe it or not, whether we think we should have authority or not. If, I, if, I, if he is my master, if he is the son of man and he is my master and he is left, then I have authority in this earth. I think sometimes the problem that we get so comfortable is because we're not using the authority the way that we should be using the authority. We get comfortable because we slip down a little bit. And to every man, his work. He gave authority and he gave work to every man. (laughs) He didn't just say, you know what? Hey, servants, I'm leaving. You get to have an extended vacation. He didn't say, I'm leaving. And you know what? When I come back, we'll just pick up where we left off. No, he left. He gave authority so that they were able to do what they were supposed to do. And he told them what they were supposed to do. He said, you have a work to do that. You can't just leave things as they are. You can't just wait for me to return, but you are supposed to be doing something. 
Let me tell you what, if I'm about the kingdom's business, if I'm about what God has called me to do, it becomes a whole lot easier to stay awake. A whole lot easier to stay awake. In fact, oh, how much do we want to get into this? Oh, it's 10.04. Wow, let's get into it. Usually the moments when I can say I've fallen asleep are usually the moments when I'm least involved in the kingdom. The times when I'm most comfortable are the times when I'm not doing and I know I'm not doing what God has called me to do. Because very often the places that God calls me to work in, the things that God calls me to do, they work against my comfort. Very often. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but God has not called me to comfort. That doesn't mean that if there's comfort in my life, then it's not of God. But God has not called me to that. He's called me to obedience. He's left and he has given me authority and he has given me power and he has given me a job to do. And if I don't do it, interesting results. Because there's many times that this similar passage or similar parable is given. We find it even similar to the parable of the talents that a master or, 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 the, or the master of the house leaves and he gives his servants abilities or talents or a job to do. And when he comes back, we find what we talked about already. When he comes back, it depends on what we have done while he is gone, whether it's a great and terrible day. Because you read about the parable of the talents, out of those three guys, two of them thought, man, it's a great day when the king came back. It's a great day. I've got twice as much as I had before. I've got his trust. I've got his validation. He says I'm worth something. He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And to one of them, it was a terrible day. And the choice was completely up to him. We have the same idea in this passage that when the master returns, and it will determine whether it's a great or terrible day depending on what we have done. I want to make sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I want to make sure that I'm about his work. I want to make sure I'm about the kingdom. I want to make sure that I am watching and not getting comfortable. It's interesting too. He says, you don't know when the master of the house cometh. He could come at evening. He could come at midnight. He could come in the cock crowing or in the morning. There is never a break from watching. Now that would be frustrating to me. That to me sounds like the AT&T repair guy. <laughs> we will be there between the hours of 8 a.m. and 12 midnight. If you're not there, we will not call you. We will not text you. If you are not there, I will leave in 15 seconds after knocking on the door and you got to call and go through it all again and set up another day. That's annoying because you know they're not showing up at 8 in the morning. <laughs> you know it's going to be closer to the midnight. But that one time you say, <laughs> that one time they'll show up at 8 when you're not there. Jesus says you've got to watch at every single hour. You know what? That tells me that sometimes doing what God wants me to do and working for Him and watching and taking heed and praying can be tiring. It can be tiring. That, that leads us to a few other areas. That's why you have the Holy Ghost. To give you rest and strength when you don't have it. You see, we take that whole thing out of the equation is that the Holy Ghost can give me physical strength and physical rest and spiritual strength. But then also, just because I'm tired serving God, doing what He's called to do, doesn't mean that I'm doing something wrong. I might be tired. I know that's a revelation. <laughs> You know, the job that God has given us is way bigger than your job on earth. How many ever tired at work? Ever get tired at work? I mean, you've just... <laughs> I heard someone say this past Thursday, what was Thursday, the second? Or the, yeah, the second. That it was the Mondayest Thursday of the year. <laughs> you just like, man... And we get tired just doing our physical job. We work a, a long shift and we get tired. You know what? That's, that's just part of it. You're going to get tired at work at some point. You don't go into your boss and say, man, I don't know what's wrong with this job. Something is wrong. I am tired. You need to figure something out because I should not be tired at work. 
And if the kingdom of God is so much bigger and requires so much more of me than my physical, it should anyway, you know what? I might be tired in my work for the kingdom. I might be tired of doing the work that he's left me to do. I might get tired of watching, of constantly keeping myself stirred up and ready for his return. But I do not want to be caught out sleeping when he returns. I do not want to be caught in a comfortable zone, not paying any attention and hoping by chance I make the return of the Lord and make the rapture. No, I want to be ready. I want to take heed. I want to be watching. I want to be praying. I want to be doing whatever I can. Because really, if I'm not, what am I doing right now? What am I doing right now? I'm wasting my time. If I'm not going to be ready for the rapture, what am I doing with my life right now? That is the point of living my life this way, is to make it to heaven. That is the point. So I want to do whatever it takes. Mark chapter 14, verse 62, and Jesus said, I am and ye shall see the son of God sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven we think about all these things we find some definite truths that Jesus is coming again it's a definite truth no one knows when Jesus will return and we also know that Jesus is the Christ the promised Messiah now something else to to just remember as we think about him coming again Sometimes we need to pull ourselves back a little and rather than fretting or getting worried over the timing or the exact chronology of details Believers should be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ as Paul wrote to Timothy rather than getting all caught up in the details You know, there's people that believe in in in, in pre-trib and mid-trib and post-trib and when the Lord's going to come back, and I think it's important to have some idea. You know, and then there's pan trib that all pan out. <laughs> Believers should simply be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus told his disciples before his crucifixion that no one knew the date of his return. He told them that before he died. He also declared the same after his resurrection, just before he ascended. And his disciples asked him, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That's in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. You know, sometimes, you ever read scripture and thought how people were so dumb? And then you looked in the mirror? (laughs) I mean, for goodness sake. Of course, we have the, the, the ability to read the whole thing, Okay. Jesus has been crucified. I mean, we know that in those three days, he goes to hell. He takes the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He leads captivity captive. He does all this stuff. And they're like, okay, God, is now my time? Is it my time to be blessed now? He's about to ascend into heaven. Well, Lord, what about our situation right now? (laughs) He has gone and defeated Satan. (laughs) He's got keys to death, hell, and the grave. They're like, what about our kingdom? I mean, come on. on. Then I look in the mirror. (laughs) That doesn't mean we can't ask for things for ourselves. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can't ever pray for anything that's about you. But sometimes it's important for us to (laughs) take heed. (laughs) See that there's something more going on. That Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and you're concerned about your kingdom. Something that has never happened before, a promise that's going to shape the rest of your entire life, that's going to birth a church, that's going to do all of these things, and you're like, well, is this, is, is this the time that you're going to do that kingdom thing? Is this when you're going to ride in on a white horse with a sword? And No, you're going to stay where you are, but you're going to have power now. Anyway. Jesus did not deny that the kingdom would be restored to Israel, but he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his own power. After Paul reassures the believers in Thessalonica of the coming of the Lord, he also notes the pointlessness of trying to determine the timing of the event. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for you for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night." So we see in his letter to the church in Corinth that Paul is attempting to, he's, he's correcting to uh, correct the abuses of the Lord's Supper, that <laughs> they're coming in and having a potluck, and the person who paid the most gets to go first. 
That sounds like a good fundraiser there. <laughs> they were having pie auctions and calling it the Lord's Supper. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> mm, blueberry pie for communion. Sounds good. I remember one time, Brother uh, Bruce Howe is the... Uh, He's over our global missions, all of our foreign missions efforts in our organization, but he used to be a missionary in El Salvador. I remember him one time telling that he had to go up to one of their mountain churches that was pretty remote, and there was this growing trend amongst those churches in that area that he tried to, was going to correct because they were serving <laughs> refried beans and tortillas for, for communion. <laughs> <laughs> So next time, we'll just have a big bowl of refried beans and a spoon. You can just take a dip. <laughs> but the church at Corinth, they're, they're having an issue with the Lord's Supper. And so he's trying to address this. And, and he, he reveals what he had received from the Lord. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had subbed, saying, This cup is a new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come that the word that Paul had received, that this was something, it gives us the meaning of what we're doing, the motivation behind what we're doing, that it's not about a popularity contest, it's not about all these different things that was happening in Corinth, but he says the motivation behind this is to show the Lord's death, to remember his death, to remember his work in you until he comes, until he comes. He reminds us about why we are doing this why we're doing it. That instead of getting caught up in all these things, that communion also reminds us that we are to be looking ahead, that we look back to what Christ did, that we can look to our present of what he has done in our life right now. But as Paul wrote to Titus, and we've quoted, that we are also looking ahead for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That when I take of communion, it's a reminder of the hope that I have to come as well. Paul quotes the words of Jesus, and he tells us, he reminds us that the, body is, the bread is Christ's body, and that the cup reminds us of Christ's blood, and that the cup signifies the establishment of the new covenant, and the fulfillment of that new covenant, it reminds us, is eternal life with him. The last thing we look at this morning as well as we think about him returning is that the prospect of death should never strike fear in a believer's heart. This is a tough one. The prospect of death should never strike fear in a believer's heart. The reason for this is that those who die in faith, those who sleep in Jesus, as 1 Thessalonians said, will rise from the dead when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. That they will meet the Lord in the air, followed by the people of faith who are living at Christ's return. That we understand that as, as we live for the Lord, that the prospect of death should not be something that is fearful. Even in the face of death, Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, he says, even in the face of death, we can comfort one another with these words. That, they, that, that in those moments, it doesn't say that we cannot sorrow. In fact, it says we don't sorrow as others. It doesn't say that there's no sorrow when somebody passes, but it's not the same sorrow because we have a comfort. <laughs> Those times are tough times. Of course, it's, it's easy when we know that somebody was living for the Lord when it, it was apparent and very obvious by the fruits of their life that they were living for God. It becomes a little more difficult in times when there's uncertainty. And that's in those moments when I'm thankful that we have a merciful judge. I'm not the judge, but we do have a merciful judge, and I trust in him. But as a believer, in the face of death, I need to understand the comfort that these words bring, but they also bring with it a challenge as well. 
The scripture is very clear, and, and, and we would say if we believe scripture that we understand that right now is temporal, but there is an eternal. That means that there is not an end, that the temporal may end, but there is still that eternal there. There is no ending. However, <laughs> there's still that idea that we can fear death. And so the question would be, is if you fear death, why do you fear the return of the master? What is there in your life that makes you worried about what the master will find when he comes back? You see, because now we get back to the parables of Jesus. We read the parables that Jesus gives. And we find elements of fear in people in those stories. The man who buried his talent, he was scared of the master. He was scared about what would take place. He did not know who the master was. <laughs> but we find in this the challenge that there are some of us who fear, and the question would be is why do we fear the return of the master? And sometimes we wonder. We're like, man, I'm coming to church. I'm doing all right. You know, this, these things are good. I don't really know. You know what? It's questions like this that reveal where we can work on. When I begin to think, you know what? Am I uncertain about the master's return? And then I begin to think, why am I uncertain? Right there is an area I've found where, you know what? I need to pray about, and I need God to help me in. Whether it's this aspect of my life, or whether it's reaching out to other people, or whether it's loving the way I should, or whether it's doing what God has called me to do, that's an area where I can be improved on in my life. So we look at these things, and we realize that we're looking for the return, that we don't know the times the details necessarily. And as we finish up this morning, we find, read about an account of a group who set a date for the second coming of Christ. It involves the Panacea Society. This following article was written uh, and printed in, on July 6, 2001 in the Telegraph, a British newspaper. And it says, A religious cult which believes that the second coming of Christ is imminent is to sell off arts and antiques worth more than 500,000 pounds, about three-quarters of a million dollars, donated by wealthy supporters. Why did these nutcase places have wealthy supporters? Anyway, sorry. Why don't we have people willing to give three-quarters of a million dollars worth of art to us? <laughs> Maybe we need to be a little more nutty. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> It says, the article says, the auction will have the twin advantages for the society of complying with charity commission rules and readying its headquarters for what it believes will be Jesus' return to earth. The society follows the teachings of Joanna Southcott and seven other British prophets who predicted Christ's return. Southcott became convinced that she was to give birth to a Messiah known as the Shiloh. Now it sounds like the Hobbit. Who would herald the end of the world in which only 144,000 of her followers would be saved. She died in 1814 without the child having made an appearance, but still has her supporters, including a dwindling band of elderly members of the society based in Bedford. And Bedford is where uh, Pilgrim's Progress, where it was written. John Coghill, treasurer of the society, said, We believe that Bedford was the site of the original Garden of Eden. I've been to Bedford, it's not. <laughs> and it was here that Eve was deceived by Satan. Now that's possible in Bedford. Bedford will be the site of the second coming. The society believes that the second coming will occur 6,000 years after God created Adam and Eve. It dates the creation to 4,000 B.C. So in order to prepare, the society bought two Victorian houses during the 1920s and 30s. Wealthy supporters came to live a communal existence at the two houses, donating all their money to the society and their return for an allowance and leaving their possessions to the organization and their wills. As a result, the society acquired paintings, furniture, silver clocks, and other antiques valued at more than three-quarters of a million dollars. With membership in the Bedford area down to 25, of whom only a handful live communally in the houses, the society has decided that the time has come to sell most of its treasures. The collection is so large that it, the auction will be held over five days. 
Mr. Coghill said one reason for the sale was that the charity commission had warned the society that because it was doing nothing with the collection, it was not fulfilling its charitable aims. You can't just collect money just in case you're trying to set up a charity. You have to give it back out. But the sale will have one other advantage for the society, which believes that the opening of Southcott's sealed box of writings, which is in its possession, will take place just before the return of Christ. The problem is that society stipulates that the box can only be opened in the presence of 24 Church of England bishops who will have to study its context, contents for seven days and nights. That's a little strange. One of its houses, Castleside, was designated as the place where the bishops would stay, but it was so full of art and antiques there was no room for them. <laughs> the auction will clear space for these ecclesiastical visitors in the unlikely event that they are ever willing to attend. We're not surprised to know that this society was not successful in setting a date for the second coming. In fact, that society dissolved as a religious organization with the passing of the last member of it in 2012. We know from Jesus' words that no one knows the time of his return. So instead of spending our time trying to be the first people to figure it out, we have the privilege of eagerly embracing the certainty of his glorious appearing, of eagerly embracing the opportunity to heed, to watch, and to pray. We have the opportunity to embrace the privilege of participating in his kingdom and doing his work until then knowing that he will appear, but until he does, I'm going to keep doing everything that he commanded me to do. Less, we should be less focused on when he will return and more focused on the fact that he will return and what he has called me to do in the meantime until his return as we stand this morning. I'm thankful that the Lord is returning someday. Just because we don't know when it is does not mean that we, can, we can't celebrate that He is returning. And so I, I, as we enter service, as we, as we go about, it's important for us to realize that this is something that should maintain our hope. That in the face of everything going on, we have this hope that we can stand upon. And this hope drives me to do what God has called me to do so that I am ready when He returns. I want us to pray this morning that God would help us to fulfill what He has called us to do and to renew that hope that we have in His return. Lord Jesus, we come before You. Thankful, Lord, for the hope, the promise that we have of Your return, God. Lord, that we know that just as You went up into heaven, as You ascended, You're going to return for us with a shout, Lord, that You're going to return for us to live eternally with You, God. And we put our hope, we put our trust, we put our faith in Your Word and in Your power, God, that You will accomplish what You said You would do. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would challenge us, Lord, to continue to heed, to watch, and to pray, to do what you have called us to do, to occupy until you come, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here in Sunday school today. We're going to take a few moments, then we'll be starting our main service today.